Good morning. All right, so this morning we are starting a brand new series in the book of First Peter. And here's what we're going to do. Uh, so can you guys guess who wrote First Peter? Anybody? Peter, yes. I was worried there for a second. Um, so here's what we're going to do. Starting off, uh, we're going to ask one question at your tables, and it's on the screen. And the question is, who was Peter? So what I want you guys to do in, in rapid-fire succession is just tell your table everything you can think of when it comes to Peter. Everything you can think about when it comes to Peter's life or who he was, go ahead and fire away at your tables for a few minutes. Okay, so hopefully you've had a chance to impress your tables with all of your mad knowledge skills. Um, but I, I will ask, though, did anybody, anybody's table, did someone say, like, wasn't he that guy in the lion's den or something? Wasn't he that guy? No one said that? Okay, good. Um, so we'll cover some of this in a little, in a, in a little bit. Um, you've talked about it at your tables already. When we read the Bible, we're going to see four names for Peter. So the Bible can already be confusing, and God chose to make it more confusing by uh, allowing people to be called different names throughout parts of the Bible. So um, there's a couple ways to look at, at, uh, at, at Peter's name. On the left, you have his original name, which is Simon in Greek, Simeon in Hebrew. And then later on, he was renamed by Jesus, and if Jesus renames you, then that is your new name, okay? That's just how it's going to go for your life. Uh, now, he is renamed Cephas, or Kephas, which, is, which means rock. That's Aramaic. And then there's Greek, a uh, form of that is uh, Petros, which is where we get the word, the name Peter. So the, the name Peter means rock. Um, so his name was changed from Simon to Peter. And then Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 18, he says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, if you know anything about church history, uh, Catholics believe that when Jesus says, like, you're the rock I'm going to build my church on, they think that means that, that Peter was literally the first pope. And they will say, that's why when you go to Rome, like, Peter is venerated, like, he is seen as, like, a um, kind of held up there with Mary, right? Uh, and, they, and that's why they call St. Peter's St. Peter's, because that's why they, they believe that he was the first pope. And uh, they believe that all popes since then have gone in succession, or like, they believe that they're connected somehow to Peter um, throughout history. Now, we don't hold to that view here. Um, we believe, other people believe that when Jesus said that statement to Peter, he actually was meaning that upon his confession that Jesus is the Messiah, that confession is the rock upon which the church will be built. And so Peter played a special role in that, but it doesn't mean that he was some kind of a, the first pope or whatever. Um, so if we're going to understand who Peter really was, we have to go back to the call of Peter on his life. So turn to cha uh, Luke chapter 5, and we're looking at verses 1 through 11. And we're just going to read this straight through. Luke 5, starting in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, so that's Jesus, 
to hear the word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, so that's Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boat so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let's recount what just took place in Luke chapter 5. Jesus is teaching next to the sea, the Sea of Galilee, and there's this crowd that's pressing in on him, and I guess maybe Jesus was claustrophobic, and so he decided to uh, get into a boat, and he just sees a couple of boats sitting there, and he decides to get into one of those boats. He asks one of the owners of the boats, which is Simon, Peter. He says, can you push out um, into the water a bit so I can talk to these people? So they push out into the water a little bit, and... uh, and then now Simon, um, then he tells Simon, he says, let's take the boats out and see if we can catch some fish. And Simon starts to argue a little bit. And he says, um, we fished all night and we caught, we caught nothing. So why are you telling us to go out and fish? We've already done that. We've, we've done that. We can't catch anything. And, uh, and so Jesus says, let's push out. So they push out into the, into the water. They go out. They catch so much fish. The boat starts to sink. And then at this moment, Simon Peter notices, notices something different about this person, Jesus. And he begins to fall down and worship him. And notice the first thing he says. He says the statement, depart from me, I'm sinful. Because he knew there was something divine about Jesus. Now he didn't quite fully understand just yet all that was going to happen or all who Jesus was, but he at least knew there's something divine about this man, Jesus. And so he falls down and worships him and says, depart from me, for I'm sinful. And I want you to understand one thing about this, this picture here in the story. It appears to me that Peter, he understands something about Jesus' holiness when he makes this statement. But he doesn't yet understand his grace. He doesn't really understand yet his, his grace. So he comes to grips with this miracle and sees there's something divine about this person. And he says he recognizes his sinful state in front of Jesus. Yet he doesn't quite understand yet the, the grace in the equation. He's not, he's not been taught about that yet as much. And I can't help but think that this is some of you sitting here right now. 
When you think of God, or you think of church, or you think of Christians, um, you feel this sense of, you're weirded out by it, you're, you're freaked out by it, you think that you see these people, or this place, or you see God as holy, and God is holy, trust me, we are not in the sense that he is, but you, you come to a place like this, and you're kind of weirded out or freaked out by, um, by Christians in that way. And I want to just invite you this morning that no, the, the disciples, in many ways, they, they felt similar to what you might feel like right now, which is, I don't feel like I belong. I don't feel like I'm worthy. I can't, I can't come face-to-face with this God. I'm not worthy to come face-to-face with him. And here's the reality. None of us are worthy to come face-to-face with this God. But our hope is that, like, like Peter, you would, as you see Peter's life play out, that you would... Um, allow him to work in your life in such a way that you not only come to grips with his holiness, but you also come to grips with his grace. And you're going to see how Peter, um, as we study the book of 1 Peter, how that played out in his life. Um, How he began to understand this is not just a holy God. He is holy for sure. But he's also, because of his holiness, he's also gracious and merciful. And this same God offers you, as you sit here, an invitation into that relationship with him in the same way that he asked Peter and James and John to follow after him. So I want you to look at the end here. Look at what Jesus says. He says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Because I'm looking at those statements. I'm like, okay, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men men so because catching men isn't scary at all like what like, I don't understand how he's making this connection but it's obviously a metaphor it's a metaphor um, as to what just happened with the fish he's, he's, he says now you're going to go and you're going to catch you're going to catch people and and so this whole thing was a was a setup for this point that Jesus wanted to make um, with his disciples with these new disciples Jesus says, you're going to spend the rest of your life helping people get introduced to me, the Messiah, Jesus. And again, they don't know all that's going to entail just yet. And it says, as soon as their boats hit the beach, they left and they followed him. Doesn't mean they stopped fishing forever and ever. They just left the profession and they went after and they started following him um, in that time. Now listen. You might, I know whenever we picture the disciples getting called, I know most of us think of like, um, anybody here watch a show like Deadliest Catch on, on TV? I know it's kind of a, it's one of those like, I forget what channel that's on, but there's these like grizzled like old men who go on these boats in like the Bering Strait of Alaska and they're on these crazy situations and they're, they're fishing in really dangerous circumstances and most of the guys are fairly elderly or fairly old in their experience. And most of us picture uh, the disciples being like these chiseled older men that Jesus is calling to be his disciples. We picture them having like maybe like already a long flowing beard and they're already kind of gray. And we picture them being a bit more mature and Christ comes and asks them to follow him as, as disciples. Now here's what's interesting. The disciples, when they were called, were probably late teens, early 20s. 
That means instead of like a beard, they had like peach fuzz. All right? Maybe. And these were young men that Jesus is pursuing to follow after him. And uh, I can imagine up to that point, Peter had all these hopes and, and plans and maybe dreams for the future of how his life might go. He probably pictured his life much like you do. Here's how my life is probably going to play out. And he would imagine it. And, but Jesus comes and Jesus would change all of it. We're going to go through a timeline in a minute of what happened with Peter's life. And I can't think that he pictured any of that was going to happen with his life. And many of you sit here and you have a picture, you know, an imagination of what your life might look like or how it might go. And if you choose and if you live your life to follow after Jesus, it's going to go in a completely different direction than the things that you can imagine as you sit here right now if you live your life apart from Jesus. Not saying you're not going to have suffering. You're going to have suffering either way. But the question is, do you want to suffer with Jesus or suffer without him? And so Peter can't imagine what's about to happen as he is invited by Jesus to follow after him. Like, what an invitation. Like, can you just imagine that? Like, you're just a fisherman, a teenage fisherman, and the, the Messiah, the King of Kings, looks at you and says, come follow after me. Come follow after me. And they have no clue what that's going to involve when he asked them that question. When you say yes to this question, will you follow me? This is the start of discipleship. When you say yes to following Jesus, then it will radically alter your entire life, the course of your entire life. I want to show you a quick timeline of just Peter's life, what happened in, in his life. So about 30 AD, I got some pictures here. That um, There's lots of famous paintings that depict Peter, so I'm going to kind of give you some pictures that go with what happens here. Um, about 30 AD is when Peter becomes a disciple of Jesus. And then about three years later, we know Jesus was, was killed on a cross. And then after the resurrection, Peter, um, Peter sees Jesus, the resurrected Christ. But before that happens, we know that Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. And so he's feeling the pressure, the social pressure from other people to disassociate from Jesus, much like you might feel sometimes in your own life, and he denies that he even knew him. And then the next scene is Peter, after he, after he sees Jesus, the resurrected Christ. Now we're in Acts chapter 2, where we know the Holy Spirit came in power and might onto the early church. And Peter preached the first Christian sermon. You want to see the first Christian sermon ever? Go to Acts chapter 2 and read that later on. But Peter, P Peter preaches at this thing called Pentecost, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit on the church. Then about 11 years later, so there's like a little gap, uh, 44 AD, Peter is imprisoned by Herod Agrippa. 
And then there's the famous story in the book of Acts where he's rescued by these angels. And, you know, you may have heard of that story before. But he, he's rescued. And then the same year, 44 AD, Peter leaves Jerusalem. I didn't have a, a painting of him, like, waving goodbye on a boat or anything like that. So I don't have anything like that. But here, he leaves Jerusalem. And then he goes um, to Rome. 54 AD, he goes to Rome. And he's in Rome now. So some time has passed. And now in, uh, in 63 AD, Peter writes his first letter from Rome. And now he's in Rome. So he, he writes his first letter. So, that, so many years have passed since he first started following after Jesus. Then a few years after that, 67 AD, Peter, after writing his second letter, so that'd be Second Peter, he's then martyred in Rome and... Tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to die in the same way that Jesus died. They were about to kill him in the same way they killed Christ. Just put him on a cross like most Roman executions were back then. But Peter demanded, he said, no, he said, you will not kill me in the same way that you killed my Savior, Jesus, put me upside down. He demanded it. So he's martyred for his faith there in Rome. And when Peter stepped out of that boat that one day on the beach, there's no way that he would know any of this would have happened. There's no way he would have known that he would have written Bible. That he would, he would write the very words that God wanted him to write. He had no clue that he'd be part of Christ's inner circle. He had no clue that he would see the resurrected Christ. He would have no clue that he would preach to 3,000 people at Pentecost, if not more. He had no clue he would stand before Herod Agrippa and other rulers and have a chance to witness about Jesus, his Savior. He had no clue he would eventually go off to Rome and then, of course, give his life up for Jesus. And if you go, anybody in here been to Rome at some point in your life? So a handful of us. Um, I've gone one time. It's an amazing place. I mean, you, you go into Rome and you're, you're going through the city and there'll, there'll be like remnants of the old wall of the city. And there's like buses will like pass under like part of the old like, wall. It's just like, that's thousands of years old. It's just an amazing place. But you'll see things like this next picture. You'll see there's a church, and there's lots of, like, Catholic legends. We're not really quite sure if this is true or not, but this one church, it's called uh, St. Peter in Chains, and I took this photo, and this is, these are supposedly the chains that they think held Peter at certain points of his imprisonment in Rome. Now, do we know? We don't know. But that's what they say. This may be um, the case. And then the next, pe- the next picture is St. Peter's Basilica. This is what everyone might know. Is this is where the Pope comes out and does these, these massive, um, they hold mass there. And, uh, and some believe, Catholic belief, is that this is the spot where Peter was crucified. And it became this big um, memorial. So this is why they call it St. Peter's Basilica. And so Peter was killed in, in Rome. We do know that. 
but some believe this is where he died, and a church was 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 built there. And this is seen as the um, as the center of the Catholic Church there at St. Peter's. So this is who Peter was. He was just this fisherman. He was saved by Jesus and had no clue like where his life was going to go or what God would do with his life um, all the way to the end of it. And um, I've said this before, I'll say it again, but there's no way for you to know all that God's going to do with your life when you say yes to Jesus. And you, you saw what happened to Peter. I'm not sitting here telling you that, you know, yeah, everything just improves or gets better for you in the physical world if you say yes to Jesus. That's not, that's not the case. We know it's not the case. But you get to be with Jesus. You get to have the presence of Jesus and the presence of God in your life as you walk through whatever God might bring you. But Jesus makes the same invitation to each one of you. If you're someone, you sit here, you don't know Christ, you're not following after Christ, he makes the same invitation to you here today to follow after him that he made to Peter so many years ago. And he's pursuing you. I think that you're here this morning because he's pursuing you. You're not here by accident. But he's pursuing you in a very purposeful way. And he wants to know you. He wants you to follow after him in the same way that he invited these disciples to follow after him. So this is, that's who Peter was. Now let's ask the question, why did Peter, why did he write? What was he writing about? We first got to know who he's writing to. So he's writing to Christians that are being persecuted. Now we don't know like the ins and outs of all their persecution. And what's happening where they're at. But if you can imagine a, a modern day map of the country of Turkey, which is close to, is part of the Middle East. But um, he is writing to like the upper western corner of modern day Turkey. And there's a region there, area of churches, that he's addressing. Um, he's addressing them from Rome. So that, that letter would go from Rome and would circulate in that part of the world. We believe it was taken there by his... Um, by his right-hand man named Sylvanus. And so we think he took that there and, and circulated that part of the world. Now, he's going to refer to the people that he's writing to as exiles or aliens and strangers. And when he, what he means by that is, is any Christian is like an exile or an alien and a stranger in the culture in which they're a part of. You've heard some Christians say things like, this is not our home. We're, we're, not, we're not made just for this world. Now, there's a couple of bad directions people can go with that. When people say Christians are aliens and strangers, some will take that and say, you know, we're supposed to be strange and different and weird, and they take that sort of in a bad direction and We'll discuss some of that as we go through the series of what that might look like. Um, I'm not a big proponent of being weird just for the sake of being weird. But there's a good kind of weird that we're supposed to be as Christians. And we'll be discussing what that looks like throughout the series as well. But yes, as Christians, we are aliens and strangers 
to the world that we live in. But it doesn't mean we check out or pull out. It means we engage. And so this whole series is going to be about how Christians live in the world that God's called them to live in and how you relate to the culture around you, how you relate to friends, how you relate to teachers, work people, administrators at your school, people on your team. Peter's writing to a people that need to live as aliens and strangers, but that doesn't mean they pull out of society and disconnect from culture. It means they engage the culture around them. And this is why we're studying this book. Remember this date, July 19th, 64 AD, a big fire broke out in the Roman Empire, actually in the, in the city of Rome. Um, it'd be hard for the whole empire to be on fire, but you get the idea. The city of Rome breaks out in a big fire, and it burned for three days, and many people died because of this fire. And the people are blaming the emperor, Nero. They're saying Nero started this fire. It's his fault. And Nero decides to turn and blame the Christians. And this great persecution breaks out in Rome especially. And it may not have been a deadly persecution in the place that Peter's writing to, but there is still some persecution happening throughout the Roman Empire. So I want you to... um, Listen to these words from a guy named uh, Tacitus, who's a, a Roman historian. He's not a Christian. And if you're a skeptic here this morning, I want to just let you know that what happened in history is recorded not just in the scriptures, but also in, um, in historical accounts of, of other people that weren't even Christians. So what you're about to read is not even written from a Christian perspective. This is a non-Christian writing this, that you're about to read this. Okay, so we're going to, they wrote different back then, so we're going to explain this. He's writing about the fire in Rome. He says, neither human assistance in the shape of imperial gifts nor attempts to appease the gods could remove the sinister report that the fire was due to Nero's own order. So what he's saying is this, this rumor breaks out saying Nero, Nero started this fire, and, um, and Nero's trying to quell that rumor, okay? And so in the hope of dissipating the rumor, he, meaning Nero, falsely diverted the charge onto a set of people whom he gave the name of Christians and who were detested for the abominations they perpetrated. Okay, go to the next slide. The founder of the sect, one Christus, that means Jesus, Jesus Christ, by name, had been executed by Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. And the dangerous superstition, though put down for the moment, broke out again. Not only in Judea, the original home of the pest, meaning Jesus, but even in Rome. So you understand what, he, what Tacitus is saying. He's saying they tried to quell Christianity in Judea, in Jerusalem, and then it broke out again, and now it's ended up in Rome. So this is, this is history. This is not like some Christian making stuff up or some... This is, these are non-Christians writing about 
what happened in history. Listen, next slide. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with the skin of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burned to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Here's why Christians were so hated in that culture. You see, the Greeks and Romans believed that there were many gods. They were polytheists. They believed there was many gods. And the Christians were saying, no, there's only one God, and we serve the one, the one true God. And so do you know that Romans called the first Christians atheists? When we say the word atheist, we mean something different. But do you know Christians were accused of being atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman and the Greek gods? So if your friend asks you, like, are you an atheist, you can say, yeah, but not the kind that you think I'm talking about. Like, I don't believe in all those other gods. I believe in the one true God. So they were called atheists. They also were accused, get this, Christians were accused of being cannibals because of all this talk about um, communion and, and what's this about you eating uh, Christ's flesh and drinking his blood? Like, what, is, what does that mean? And so they were accused of being cannibals and, and looked down upon by the Romans because of it. So Nero begins killing all these Christians. He would sew wild animal skins onto Christians and then send them, send wild dogs after them and let them be mauled to death. He would roll them in tar and oil and light them on fire to um, illuminate his gardens at night. And we don't know if, if this stuff I just read, we're not sure if all that happened uh, right before or after letter Peter is writing to these people in Asia Minor, but we do know that there was a lot of persecution happening in Rome, and some of that was making its way over to where these people were at over in um, that part of the world as well. So Peter is not writing to, to correct some just theological issue or some um, historical thing. He is writing to a people uh, in order to strengthen their faith. Peter is writing to a people um, that are undergoing persecution, and his hope is to bring about perseverance and joy in the midst of their suffering and their persecution. And he wants them to see God's presence in the suffering that they're experiencing in that part of the world. So here's why we're teaching this book. One of the most comforting things we're going to see in this letter from Peter is that we don't suffer by accident. Our trials are not by accident. We live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity. I don't have to tell you that. You already know that. Um, 2016 was one of the bloodiest years on record worldwide. Over 4,000 Christians died because of their faith worldwide. And that might not be happening here, but there is an intellectual and a social persecution that happens where you and I live. And I'm not teaching this book so that we can just rally around and say, hey, look how much we're being picked on. Tell culture to leave us alone. No, it's, it's so that you can hopefully learn to love the people and engage the people of our culture. This is why we're studying this book. It's not just to feel sorry for ourselves or have a pity party for Christians. But we have entered, like I think, a new realm in our culture where people don't just disagree with um, the Christian faith, 
But in our culture today, even in America, people will, are starting to look at Christianity and say, Christianity is, is evil. Some of the things that you all believe is actually evil and hurtful to our society. And so you're seeing some of that, I think, play out today. But when Christians are persecuted, especially I think where we live now, I think we act kind of surprised, don't we? We act surprised. Like, can you believe this is happening like in our, in our country? Our, our Christian nation is acting this way towards Christians. Um, and if there's one thing we learn from Scripture, it's that people often suffer for their faith. But because we live in a free country, we're often surprised and offended when we suffer for our faith. A, few, a couple years ago, um, back when a guy named uh, Tim Tebow, you guys remember Tim Tebow? You guys know who Tim Tebow is? Okay, okay, we know Tim Tebow. Yeah, I know it's not Tim Tebow. That's a different guy. But that's, that's name, that's, that guy's name is Stephen A. Smith. He works for ESPN. And uh, he always looks like this on ESPN. He has this, like, he rolls his eyes, and he's like, you're crazy, you know. You know who Stephen A. Smith is. But he um, was in a debate on one of his shows about Tim Tebow. Tim, everyone knows Tim Tebow was a strong Christian guy. He in the NFL for a couple of years, and he was a strong Christian presence in the NFL and made no apology for his faith. And, um, but of course, people are making fun of Tim Tebow, and so culture's making fun of Tim Tebow. And so there's this, all this debate about, um, you know, well, what if Tim Tebow was a Muslim? There's no way that a Muslim would get this kind of persecution if he was a Muslim and, um, and expressing his faith in a public way, we would never do that to a Muslim. And so everyone's kind of doing this back and forth thing about this debate about, you know, should he or should he not be treated this way by the culture and so on. And Stephen A. Smith, on one of his talk shows, he says one of the most, probably the only profound thing I've ever heard on ESPN. He says, I don't understand why Christians act so surprised and offended when they're persecuted for their faith, the Bible tells us to expect this kind of thing. And I couldn't help but think, you know, I'm sure, like, right before the show, maybe Stephen A. Smith was doing his devotionals, and he read, happened to read 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, Beloved, do not... Go to my next slide there. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Maybe, just maybe. So here's the, the big message of the book. We shouldn't be surprised and offended when we're going through the fiery trial. We should embrace it. We should engage people in the midst of it. We should expect it. And it's why we're teaching this book. A guy named Matt Carter says, Trials either burn up our faith or make our faith more pure. And we're going to look in this book how this applies to the here and now in your everyday life. Go ahead and discuss your questions at your tables for a few minutes.